Welcome to the Holy Catholic Brew. My name is Lyndon Chan, and I'm a newly minted young professional. I've been blessed with the presence of really amazing, faithful Catholics in my life, and by the grace of God in my own life. This podcast is meant to distill some of the fruitiest, strongest, and most concentrated graces I've received that I think others might benefit from hearing. So sit back, grab your favorite brew, and tune in with me for interviews and reflections as we steep ourselves in the infinite, life-giving love of God. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Holy Catholic Brew. Today I interview Cardinal Thomas Collins, who is currently the Archbishop of Toronto and formerly a diocesan priest in the Diocese of Hamilton. For as long as I could remember, Thomas Collins has always been my only bishop, so I'm really excited to interview him and learn more about his discernment process and his thoughts about his legacy as a bishop. A lot of names are mentioned in this episode, so if you need a refresher, I've listed all the important ones in the show notes. So sit back and listen from Cardinal Collins himself. Enjoy. I'm going there to meet my father. I'm going there no more to roam. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going So thank you for, for agreeing to be interviewed again. I guess we can start with a bit of introduction. Mm-hmm. So my name is Lyndon. Um, I'm a parishioner at the Archdiocese of Toronto. And um, I guess you're the only bishop I've ever known um, in the church. <laughs> so well, uh, You're kind of young, so there we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I guess you were installed as bishop of the Archdiocese in 2006 or 2007. I was named bishop here December 16, 2006, but I was installed this January 30th, 2007. That's when I actually began. I see. I guess you're the second bishop, but you're the first bishop that I remember. Yeah, because you would have known Cardinal Ambrosi, but you would have been a young young lad then. And probably yeah. yeah. And yes, you've been very um, active in showing your support for the young Catholic community at, in Toronto. I was a member of the Newman Center community until I graduated. All right. Okay. Good. That's a, we're probably seeing you there. Yeah, and I've also served mass with you once. Um, I remember you celebrated mass for the Catholic Scientists Society. All right. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is a little bit of introduction. Could you say a few words to introduce yourself? Okay. Well, I, I grew up in Guelph, Ontario. I was a member of the Church of Our Lady Parish there. Have you ever been to Guelph? Big stone church on the hill. And my father worked for the Guelph Mercury. The newspaper, he was a circulation manager. My mother was a secretary for a lawyer in Guelph. So I grew up there, went to the Catholic school system there. And then when I was, I went to the University of Waterloo, St. Jerome's College. And I um, did a basically an honors degree in English literature. I also did philosophy because I knew I wanted to be a priest, but my father was ill. And so I couldn't go to the seminary. I needed to stay home and help lift him in and out of bed. He had a stroke, uh, he, like he couldn't walk. And so... I could help out a bit that way. So I stayed at home when I went to university. Uh, and then uh, finally I graduated, and, that's, uh, and then my father died in 1967. So I finished in 69, and I, then I went into seminary and was ordained priest in 73. I was there for a couple of years uh, in a parish, teaching in a high school there, and I went to Rome for a few years to study scripture and taught at the seminary in London and then was made uh, a bishop in 1997, and I was sent out to Alberta. 
So I was a bishop in uh, St. Paul, Alberta, which is like Fort McMurray is the biggest city there. It's up in the north of Alberta. And I was there for about a year and a half. And then I was made Archbishop of Edmonton from 1999 to 2006. Then, as I say, Pope Benedict chose me to be Archbishop of Toronto. And then I became a cardinal in 2012. Oh, that's a little short, quick summary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I asked you beforehand to pick a song that you felt related to your vocational discernment. What song would that be? Oh, well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about the vocation discernment. I, what I, my favorite song, which kind of is, I guess, related to that, is O God Beyond All Praising. It's, uh, the music is from Jupiter by Gustav Holtz. It's also the same music as I Vow to Thee, My Country, which is a British song, which actually has very good words as well. But O God Beyond All Praising is a beautiful hymn, and it speaks of, uh, you know, whether our tomorrows be filled with good or ill, we'll triumph through our sorrows and rise to bless you still, to glory in your beauty and celebrate your ways and make a joyful duty our sacrifice of praise. So I always figure that's a good way of living life. And I like a song that's majestic in its music and is substantial in its words. And that's my favorite hymn. I guess we can dive into the questions now. Could you explain your vocation in general and what it means to you? Well, my vocation basically is to be a priest. That's my first vocation, well, my vocation to be a Christian. But within my life as a Christian, God called me to be a priest. And I discerned that, and I spent a lot of time, although I was only in the seminary for four years, which is not very long at all. Uh, but I had thought about it a long time, and I prayed about it. So in terms of being called, in the sense of the spiritual call, it would be to the priesthood. And I, I've never had a dramatic moment of feeling like God wants me to be a priest. It's been more a gentle, just a consciousness over time, which became more and more clear. The only dramatic thing or direct thing was when Father John Newstead, my teacher in high school, said, you know, you should think about being a priest. But basically, it's just when I became more and more convinced that's what God was calling me to be. Now, after that, you know, you don't really choose to be a bishop or to be a cardinal or archbishop. The call there is by the telephone. <laughs> so after 20, I was 24 years a priest of Hamilton Diocese, and I was the principal or the rector of St. Peter's Seminary in London. And one day I got a phone call, and it was from the Nuncio, which is the Pope's representative in Ottawa. And he said, I want to see you tomorrow. And I thought, oh, dear. So I said, well, could it be the day after? Because I had something I had to do. And he, oh, yes, come the day after. So I flew up to Ottawa. The only time I've ever been on an airplane with no luggage whatsoever, I just flew up myself. And the guy there welcomed me. And this guy he sent from the nuncio, and he drove me to the place. And I went in, and then the nuncio said, Ah, can I call in a priest? It's either good news or bad news. But he said, This is good news. The Pope has made you Bishop of St. Paul, Alberta. So do you accept? I didn't know where St. Paul, Alberta was. I really didn't know much about Alberta at all. So, oh, yes, whatever the Pope wants. So then we had lunch together, and I headed back, and I looked at the map to find out where my diocese would be. <laughs> and then... That very evening, Bishop John Sherlock knew I was going to be called to be a bishop. So I came over to his house. He said, come to my house. So I came to his house, and we talked a bit. As I walked in the door, he gave me a ring that Bishop Paul Redding had given to him to give to me, I think, if I ever became a bishop. And it's a ring that's very, very sentimental to me, because Bishop Redding was my bishop for many years. He died at the age of 58 of cancer. And so he was a classmate of Bishop Sherlock, who was the Bishop of London, where I was working in the seminary. 
So he gave me this ring to put on. I said, oh, my, thank you very much. And then I called Bishop Tonus, who was my bishop, Bishop Hamilton, and he, I asked him to ordain me, and so they both knew I was going to be called. So that was good. Then I went home, and nobody knew about it yet. So I went to my, my apartment in the seminary where I was the rector. I said, I think I'll try on the ring. So I put on the ring. <laughs> Gosh, what do you know? A bishop's ring. And then, and then knock, knock, knock on the door. Oh, I'm trying to pull the iron thing off. You know? <laughs> so I put my hand by me. Hello, oh, yes. <laughs> and then a few days later, it, it was confirmed. It was announced. So then I, I got another phone call when I went to St. Paul, Alberta. I was ordained a bishop. May 14, 1997, I went out there, and then I was in my office in St. Paul. I actually was down having a cup of coffee and cookies with my a very small staff, only about two people. And it, was, it must have been from Toronto. And then I got a phone call, and uh, Nuncio said, uh, the Pope has made you Archbishop of Edmonton. And then I was uh, in Edmonton. Uh, my secretary said, you have a phone call for the Nuncio. So I, I went up, and he said, how are things in Edmonton? I said, fine, they're wonderful. Well, the Pope has just made you Archbishop of Toronto. Okay, so this is about a Tuesday. I said, when does it, when does it happen? Saturday morning. And I said, oh, okay, well, well, well. I remember writing down Toronto. I said, oh, good grief. So, uh, so that's kind of coming back home because I'm from Guelph, so it's kind of close to Toronto. Mm -hmm. I was announced on December 16, 2006. And then many years later, I was in Washington working on some translations of the liturgy. And I was in my hotel room. I saw the flashing light of a, like a message. So it was the nuncio's office. And he said, well, tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock Toronto time, you're going to be named the cardinal. So, okay, thank you. And uh, I thought I better get back to Toronto. <laughs> so that's how it works. If you're in the priesthood, I call in priests, or Father Monsieur Calarothel does. And we just, uh, it's, it's a matter of being called by God, certainly. But it's also a matter of obedience. And so I just ordained eight wonderful new priests. And uh, I'll think of their four next year. And they promise obedience and respect to me and my successors. And that means you go where you're sent. So I had no idea I'd spend 10 years of my life in Alberta. And I had no idea I'd ever be Archbishop of Toronto or be a Cardinal. So this is a very important thing about being a priest, actually. It's that you don't say, my career will be this, I'll be this, I'll be that, I'll be something else. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do that, you've got problems. Instead, you just do, and then you get a phone call. <laughs> and they tell you you're going somewhere else. It's a beautiful part of the priestly vocation. That just go where you're sent, be a feather on the breath of God. That's what we call it to be. Anyway, that's just a bit about my life story and where I've been. I thought as a priest, you would be assigned to a particular diocese. So why would, does the needs of different dioceses take precedence over that? Like you'd be attached to a different diocese? No, there's basically two different ways of being a priest. I mean, it's the same priest, but different ways. One way is to be a diocesan priest, a priest of a diocese. Your direct superior is the bishop and you work for the diocese, normally in a parish in the diocese. But you can get a special assignment like I did as a priest of Hamilton. And so you're ordained by the one who is your superior. The other way is to be a member of a religious order. The Jesuits, Dominicans, Franciscans, Salesians, many different orders. They're all founded by some saint. And they all have a special work like universities or youth work or whatever. 
their units are over many, many dioceses. Like you might have the Jesuits now are all of Canada. So if you're a Jesuit of the Canadian province, you might go like their like provinces of their section. You could go anywhere all over Canada. So it's a it's a more geographically spread out. Your superior is a priest. He's not a bishop. In the case of the Jesuits, he is appointed by the general in Rome, who is elected. Other religious orders, you elect your superior. Like in a monastery, if you're the monks, the brothers, and priests uh, elect the abbot. But when I thought I was being called to the priesthood, I wanted to be a diocesan priest, not a religious order priest like Jesuits, Franciscans, and so on. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to obey and be sent by my spiritual father, a man who not only did I elect him, another priest I elected, or another priest that somebody appointed to be my superior, but I wanted to be in communion with my bishop, my spiritual father, the successor of the apostles. When I put my hands between the hands of Bishop Redding, my bishop, it was a very special thing. He was my father, my spiritual father. And he was so kind to me. When I, I was overstudying in Rome, and I remember how really loving he was. But even if he wasn't, even if he was a real nasty person or something, he was my bishop. And what, but he was a very kind man. But it was unusual, because if you're a diocesan priest like me, like, I want to be a parish priest. I thought, that's maybe what God wants me to be. I thought I could be a Jesuit, because I'm very good academic. And it's always been a kind of a strong point with me. So I thought, well, if I become a Jesuit, I'll be in a big institution, get all kinds of academic degrees, and do that. But I thought, I just want to be a, a priest with my bishop. So I became a seminarian for Hamilton Diocese. And then I was chosen to go away to Rome to study, get all kinds of academic degrees and teach at an institution like a Jesuit. So I ended up doing, for the 24 years, I was a priest of Hamilton Diocese. 22 of them. I was outside of my diocese, which is unusual for a diocesan priest. Five of them I was in Rome studying. And the rest of the time, I was in London at the seminary teaching. But I taught on a mission from my bishop. And we had our, some of our Hamilton seminarians there. And so I knew I was there for them and for the others. I was donated to the seminary by my bishop. And I always had a picture of my bishop on my desk. It's a personal thing. It's very deep. And I always would obey my bishop because you promise obedience and respect to the bishop and his successors. But it's a very, it's hard to describe. It's a beautiful thing that you have this spiritual, sacramental relationship to your boss, you might say. Uh, now, this year, the only time I've ever heard that they did put their hands between the hands of the bishop because of COVID and all that, I did it from a distance across the sanctuary. But I did it for each one and each of the eight individually. I called them by name to do you promise respect and obedience to me and my successors? And then when they say, I do, say, may God who has begun the good work and you bring it to fulfillment. So I was a diocesan priest, not a religious order priest. But then I was called by the Holy Father to be a bishop. So I was no longer a priest of Hamilton. I was bishop of St. Alberta. Then I was called by the Holy Father to be bishop of Edmonton. Then I was called by the Holy Father to be bishop of Toronto. So that's a move simply because the Holy Father may be a bishop and signed me to be the spiritual father of everyone in the diocese. See, if you're a religious order priest, you might go from Hamilton Diocese to London Diocese to St. Paul Diocese to Edmonton Diocese to Toronto Diocese, all the dioceses I've been in. But you'd be moving place to place because you're just teaching here and teaching there and going. 
but you would never have a direct relationship to the diocese or to the bishop. And that's why when I ordained, you need a bishop to become a priest, you know, to ordain you a priest. But I only ordain diocesan priests of my diocese and also the oratorians because they're sort of like diocesan priests. When a religious order needs a priest ordained, I send one of my auxiliaries because they're bishops. They can ordain them. I've only ordained one religious order priest, I think. Yeah, my very first ordination, I practiced on a Jesuit. It was this guy, I forget, I forget his name now. I saw him about a half an hour before the ordination, a French name. He was from St. Paul. Oh, I've forgotten his name. But anyway, I saw him. He seemed like a nice young man. He was coming home to his diocese, so I went through the ceremony. I ordained him. He's definitely a priest, and I haven't seen him since. That's why I didn't become a Jesuit. I mean, that's why I didn't become a disorder. I became a priest. Even when I was away from my bishop, I had his picture on my desk, and I knew I was, he was with me and I was with him. And he was my spiritual father. Uh, you know, that's, for me, a very personal thing. And I think it is for diocesan priests. I don't know. Religious orders have other approaches. I'm sure it's very good. Just I don't know what it is because it's not my call. I see. Wouldn't there be something similar, though, between the religious order priests and their superiors? Oh, yeah. Well, the religious order priests take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We don't take the vows exactly. We promise obedience. We live a life of celibacy. And we're meant to live simply. But if you are a diocesan priest, you for poverty. If you have a car, you have to buy it. Like this clothing I have, I bought it. I had to pay for it. But I get like a living allowance and stuff like that. But with your religious, it's all provided for you. You don't get any money, but it's, everything's provided for you. You get allowance and stuff. But your obedience is also, you're always in the church. You need to have someone who's your superior. But the difference is that, and it's just for me, it's maybe for religious would have a different approach. And so I'm not, to, not for me to say, it's just not my vocation. But the thing is, as a priest, my bishop was not just my boss. He wasn't just the one who would tell me where to go and all that. He was, like, especially with Bishop Redding, he's my sacramental father. And bishops stay for a long time. Well, I'm getting near the end. It used to be a bishop. The retirement age for bishops was death, which is <laughs> the retirement age. But, you know, now what they do is they say that you never retire from being a bishop. But you retire from the office, from the burdens of responsibility and authority and all that. So when I turn 75, I will submit my resignation to the Pope. And that he may accept it, may keep me on for a few years, do what he wants, you know. Usually by 80. At 80, I automatically lose my vote for Pope as a cardinal. So sometimes they keep cardinals on as in charge of their diocese till 80. Sometimes they do it right away. Like Cardinal Ambrosic was 77 when his resignation was accepted. But if you're religious, you elect some guy or choose some guy to be the provincial or the superior. And then five years later, someone else is picked. So it's more of a functional thing. For the 24 years that I was a priest of Hamilton, there were only two bishops I had. And yeah. the first one died. Bishop Redding died. It would have been about 10 years he was my bishop. And then another 14 years, my bishop was Bishop Tonus. So it's kind of a longer-term thing and a more personal thing. I can't say how personal it is for religious and their superiors. I don't know. And as a bishop now, I look upon my priests as being like spiritual sons. And we have a, a relationship like that. 
And that's very beautiful. Okay. Yeah, that's very interesting. I never thought of that. To me, it seemed like bishops and superiors of religious orders are very similar. Canonically, in a sense, they're the ones who tell the priest where to move and what his assignment is. So that's sort of similar. And if there's a problem with a priest, sad to say, the hardest thing of being a superior or a bishop is you have to deal with it. There are a few, fortunately not very many, but there are a few times you have problems, you know. You may have to discipline a priest or something. That's probably similar. But the difference I just see, I see it especially at the chrism mass when we consecrate the chrism. And I remember my own last chrism mass as a priest. Even though I spent most of my life in London at the seminary, I always drove with the Hamilton seminarians to the Hamilton Cathedral for the Bishop of Hamilton at the Mass of the Chrism to consecrate the chrism and the oil of the sick and the oil of the catechumens. And all the priests would be gathered there. I would be there with my brother priests of Hamilton, and there would be my bishop consecrating the chrism. And we would all renew our promises in the presence of our bishop. Like that was when I was really home. Even though I was in London for many, many years, I always knew I was a priest of Hamilton. My bishop was Bishop Redding and the Bishop Tonus. But now for a few years, I was the head of the seminary as a rector. I figured I had a duty because I was the head of the London seminary to be at the London. So I was there, you know, and it was a wonderful bishops there. And I, but it just was different. I was there out of responsibility and I was very glad to be there. They're very wonderful priests and wonderful bishop, but I was a visitor. But my very last chrism mass in Hamilton, this, I was named a bishop just before Holy Week. I was told I was going to be a bishop. It was going to be announced on the day after the chrism mass in Holy Week. And so I figured this is my last time. So even though I was rector of the seminary in London, I drove to Hamilton the night before I was named, I was going to be announced that I would be a bishop. And I was there, and I walked in, and Bishop Tonus looked, oh, here's Father Collins with us and all that. And I remember, I'll never forget, I was there with my brothers of the priesthood of Hamilton. And I remember as we put out our hands to join with the bishop in consecrating the chrism, I remember thinking, in tomorrow morning, at 6 o'clock in the morning, it's going to be announced that I'm going to be a bishop. And that chrism that I'm consecrating, joining with the bishop, will be used to anoint my head as a bishop. The bishop, of course, knew I was going to be a bishop the next morning, named a bishop the next morning. Nobody else did, and you know, you don't tell people. So then I drove back, all alone drove back, and I asked my vice rector to call all the faculty priests together at 6.30 in the morning, because we had a seven o'clock morning mass. And uh, they wondered, what on earth does he want to do that for? So we had a faculty meeting, and I said, well, look, everyone, this is my last thing. I have just been named a bishop. So then I told the seminarians, you know, but it's very beautiful because I thought, here I am with my brothers and with my bishop. After that, I was bishop of St. Paul over. And I met with my priests there. I had 24 priests. And I have 700 in Toronto. About 700. Now, about 350 or so, 350, 400 religious, and about 300 and 350-something uh, diocesan. So going back, did you always know you would become a priest? Or did you consider other vocations as well? Well, I very strongly thought about being a priest since I was very young, mm-hmm. especially because I was very edified by the example of Father Newstead, Father Noonan, the priest in my parish. I also had thought of being a teacher because I'm very academic, and I thought of being a lawyer because uh, right behind us, see the picture of Thomas More there. Ta-da, ta-da, there's Thomas More. 
my mom worked for a lawyer. I read this book, My Life in Court by Louis Neiser and all this stuff. It was exciting. But I really thought about it a lot. I didn't tell anyone. People said, what are you going to be? I said, oh, maybe a teacher, maybe a lawyer. And I didn't mention too much. Because if you're thinking of the priesthood very often, you want to keep private. Because if you say too much, there'll be pressure. I mean, you want to have a little freedom so you can walk away from it if you decide, no, it's not what God wants. Or you can proceed. You want to have a little protective freedom, like a wall that allows you to be private and think and pray and, you know, and talk with your spiritual director and stuff. So I had always, I thought about being a priest for a long time, certainly through high school. And Father Newstead said, you should think about being a priest. And the fact that he said it had a profound influence on my 17-year-old heart because I thought I admired him enormously. He was a very faithful priest. He would visit the sick every day. Uh, he himself had been sick as a young man. He was just a very good priest. And so the, the fact that he thought I should think about being a priest even though I had been thinking about it, it influenced me enormously. And then I slowly went to talk to my pastor. It was a different one by that time, Father Lloyd Ryan. And I said, I think I would like to be a priest. What do I do? So he sent me down to see Bishop Redding, who at that time was the auxiliary bishop. Bishop Ryan was the bishop. I met with him and explained he'd send me to the seminary, and I applied for that and so on. Nowadays, it's a much longer process than it was in my time. And I've tried to lengthen the process myself. I regret that I had a somewhat shorter process. I hope it turned out okay, but I regret it. And I want the, the seminarians to have a longer process for prayer and discernment. <laughs> Is it seven years now? Well, it depends a lot on when you start, really. <laughs> the process, and you might get into it at different stages, but what we do is if you're thinking of the priesthood, you talk with maybe your pastor, maybe a priest or someone, and they get you in touch with the vocation director. And for about a year, or maybe less, but usually about a year, maybe two, you meet together with people called the associates. When that time is in your life could vary. I want to make it available for people in university, if that's what they're ready for. So we have a university-level seminary. They, they live in a place called Sarah House. We're rebuilding the actual Sarah House. Right now, Sarah House is out of the seminary, but it's a, a separate thing. They're university students. But they go to Mass at the seminary. They're seminarians, too. And that was not my vocation because I was needed at home when I was a university student. So what you do is you, in our diocese, you have that period of six months or a year or maybe two years. And then if you feel it's right, the vocation director and his associates of a vocation team will also think about it. And you may say, I think I want to go in the seminary this September. And they may say, no, wait another year. Or they may say, yeah, I think you're ready. So we give them the application form. They don't pick it up. We give it to them when we think they're ready, if we do think they're ready. Then you enter. Now, you can enter as a university student. If you're doing that, you take certain specific philosophy courses. Also, sometime early on in the program, you cut out of academics. You spend a whole year of meditation upon the Word of God, special spiritual formation. It's like a long retreat. It's like when St. Paul had his big experience on the road to Damascus, then he went to check with the apostles, then he went to Arabia for a year or two or three before he went on the road. So you have this year called the spiritual year, and you have a thing like the media fast, where you don't have nothing with buttons on it, in a sense, no iPhone, no iPad, no email, no Twitter, no Facebook, nothing, none of that. You cut it out, cold turkey, 
except for, I think, Saturday. Saturday morning, you can catch up in your emails. So we, we figure it would be too hard for a young person these days to be completely <laughs> taken away. But no radio, no television. You just you actually pray to God and get to meet the fellow seminarians. It's a special focus here. You kind of live together in a kind of a retreat type. You're sort of like the religious orders have a novitiate. And then you finish your university or you do it after university, whenever you do it. Then you go into two years of theology where you study the scriptures and things like that. You live at St. Augustine Seminary out at uh, Scarborough. And while you're there, you have various spiritual assignments, pastoral assignments. Uh, you, you learn uh, counseling. You visit hospitals and the you know, food banks and things like that. And you do a lot of stuff. But you basically are studying. You live a life together in a seminary where you have um, regular mass, morning prayer, evening prayer. You have a spiritual director. You have a community. You know, and all the time, the seminary faculty are trying to help you to see whether you're called to be a priest. There's also all kinds of psychological stuff you do first, like testing and everything. And then after two years of the academic, you go to a parish for an apprenticeship for a year. And there we, uh, the pastor, we always give you a good, wise, holy pastor. And it's usually a big parish, you get a lot of experience. And you help out there, you do that, you learn a bit about what priests do. You live with the priest there and kind of like apprenticeship. And we ask the parishioners, what do you think of them? What do you need? And they have a little, sometimes they say, well, we give them practice of public speaking. Well, maybe do this or do that. And they give their feedback. So we pay attention to what they say. And then you go back for two more years. And after that, we have a stage you're called reader. Of course, we have readers at Mass, but this is a formally a reader. Acolyte, which is sort of like a server, but basically it's a formal, it's a step. You have to apply for it. You write a letter. I want to be a reader. I, I feel called. I'm doing this freely and so on. The faculty discuss it. They say, yes, I think he's ready. Or no, maybe take a bit more time. Then the bishop has a little ceremony. You become a reader. They become an acolyte. Then you become a candidate. Now, none of these are sacraments. They're just like lines in the sand. But you apply for each one of them. So it's you have several chances to, with the director. Your spiritual director may say, no, maybe wait a bit. Or you may say, I think I'll wait. Or maybe you say, no, I think I'm ready. And then the faculty may, they do internally, we have thing called the internal form, which is you and God, and with the help of your confessor or your spiritual director. And the spiritual director can never talk like a confessor about what you talk to him about. So he's advising you privately. So that's one track going along is internal. The other is external. That's where the priests of the faculty and the lay people there, the faculty, they say, is he good in public speaking? Is he good showing leadership? Is he the kind of things you see outside? And so they decide whether to recommend the seminarian to me, to the bishop, to give him candidacy, like elector accolated candidate. Then the big one is uh, just after when you're getting to your fourth year, you ask to be a deacon. And that's a sacrament. And so we take that very seriously. We have another discussion of the whole thing. Your spiritual director, you pray, you think, am I called to do, say, so you write the letter. And then the faculty says, yes, I think he's ready. And they recommend it. Then I ordain you. And then that's forever. That's when you take the promise of celibacy, obedience. It's where you promise to pray the liturgy, the hours, the divine office every day. On our part, we wear the Roman collar. In some places, they wear a cassock or Roman collar earlier. For us, we only allow a person to wear the Roman collar when they're a deacon. And when I ordained, it was nice to see at the reception after there they are with their own collar. And then one more year, you make your big decision, your permanent decision, a year before you're ordained a priest. So the, the priesthood doesn't have that stress involved with it. You know, you could still decide not to proceed. That has happened. But basically, 
you go through it again and all that. Then you're called, then I ordain the priesthood. So, well, if you came in at the beginning of university, you would have four years university probably. You'd have a spiritual year. You would have five years of theology. So that's four, five, ten, ten years. However, if you came in after finishing your university, you might have a year of philosophy studies, spiritual year, and five years. You'd have seven years. But it's all things you're going to do anyway. You're going to go to university either in or out of the seminary. I went to the university out of the seminary. Some people we give a chance for a guy who wants to go in. I didn't do it that way. But I regret a bit because I figure if you can be a seminarian, if it's your call, at the university level, you have a longer period of spiritual direction and formation. I regret that I was only a seminarian for four total of four years. We had no spiritual year. We had no internship. I made a permanent commitment after only three eight-month periods of formation. I'm appalled because I was three years, and there we are. I think it was in God's providence. That's what God called me to. But I want to give the guys a bit more than that, a lot more than that. So it depends when you enter, how long it takes, you know. Some guys come with a bachelor's degree. Some guys come with a master's degree. Some guys come like out of high school and they're getting the degree while they're there. It's it varies. I want to make sure if a guy really is ready when he's a university student, I want to have a chance for him to enter. If he's ready after university, I want to give him a chance to enter. Or you get a guy, maybe he's 50, 45, 40, 50 years old, been in a job somewhere, and he decides he discovers God's calling me. So he enters the seminary then. He would not do the university. He usually probably have it. We go through the theology. We have guys like that. We have guys who are executives in a big thing or worked in a business. Or We have a guy who practices as a lawyer and as a journalist. We have a guy who was a bus driver. I know a guy who was a scientist. And we have, we have a lot of backgrounds. So it all depends. I see. Getting back to the office of bishop, what do you normally do in a regular day? And I guess what's different from what you'd expected? Well, being a bishop depends a bit on the size of the diocese. This is a huge diocese. We have 2 million Catholics. We have 700 priests and 225 parishes. So it's, but while I'll tell you what my typical day, well, it's a bit different with COVID too, because I'm normally on the road going through meetings and gatherings. Much of that's been canceled. We're doing it all this way. You know, we would normally be sitting down and be doing this. So uh, I could be visiting schools, school masses. So that's all changed. It's a bit unusual. But what I do now, I get up at 5.15. And what I do is I take all my, when I get older, I'm 73, you put little drops in the eyes and take pills and up. Then I head down to the kitchen. I live in a house here with the rectory beside the cathedral with nine other priests. Three of them are working as priests of this parish, the cathedral parish. The others are uh, like the vicar general, my assistant, my personal secretary, and assistant priest secretary, the vicar general, the director of personnel, the director of vocation, the director of catechesis, uh, and stuff like that. You know, So we live in a little community. And I walk down the kitchen, put on a pot of coffee, get some cereal. Well, at that time, the coffee's ready. I have a huge mug. So I fill it up, then I go down. And by that time, it's about 6 o'clock. And I, I take a quick skim of the papers. Then I walk, I go back up to my apartment upstairs. And I have a little chapel. Like uh, There's a chapel in the rectory here. And there's, of course, there's a church just down the hall. But I have a, an apartment. I've got like a living room, a bathroom, bedroom, and a little hallway. And there's a little study and a chapel there. So I go in there with my mug of coffee. And I have a little nice cozy chair. And I sit down there and I spend time in prayer. And what I do now as I think of the readings is I've been preaching every day for about 136 days in a row, which I didn't never done before. 
And so I do that from about 6.20 to about 7.20. And then I walk over down the hall and I go out into the cathedral and my assistant, Father Kolosowski, has everything set up. Uh, and then at 7.30, boom, on the dot, out we go. And we have the live stream mass, about five to 6,000 every day of like, people tune in or computers tune in, probably more people. And sometimes it's 20,000 on Sunday. But I go out and I celebrate the mass, I preach. And we pray the rosary and all that. Then I come back in. And then it depends. I sometimes have meetings like this. We have like uh, things like that nature. Or sometimes I just, it's unusual not being on the road. But I do a lot of reading now. I do a lot of planning and so on. So I do that and I go to the office. But now the office is basically closed. Normally I go there and meet people and so on. If there's a crisis, I deal with it. Uh, you know, if there's complaints, I have to sort of, but I have four other bishops to help me with that. So I figure if there are any problems, give it to the other bishops. I'll just chicken out. No, no, just kidding. No. <laughs> so that's a, that's what I do, and it's a, my main work is to pray for the people. That's what I'm when I'm praying there, um, praying for the people with pandemic. You know, with the people who've lost their jobs. Like I think of Moses praying for the people. That's my the bishop is called to sanctify, to govern, to shepherd, and to teach. So one thing I got to do the next few days is plan the Lectio Divina every Sunday and evening for once a month, 10 times, 10 months in a row, except July and August. I do a meditation upon scripture because that's my background. I got an ability to do it. So it's televised and got to get it ready. I got to plan what are the passages I'm going to use. So that's one thing I'm going to be doing. For a while, I was just going straight without a, without a break, which is not very wise. So now the very kind priests of the parish here, they cover the Saturday Mass. Because we want people who can't get to Mass to be sure they have a live stream Mass. And we have a lot of people come to the actual church now that physically can come, fortunately. And then I go, my assistant, Father Kalasowski, drives me and visit my sister. Well, I have a little apartment there where I can stay there and read and have a little day off and be with my sister. And then I come back Sunday morning. That's kind of what I do. Uh, I teach a bit. I give a lot of talks. I pray for the people, I celebrate Mass, ordain, do things like that, and I govern, shepherd. I move the priests around. If there's a problem, a complaint, I try to deal with it. Um, so it's shepherd, teacher, and priest, prophet and priest. That's my mission. Until I, 75, I put in my letter to the Pope. Whenever he picks it, he says, yes, whenever. And at, at that point, I'll still be a bishop, still be a cardinal and all that. Cardinal is just what I do and when I vote for Pope, basically. And I'm on concert mm -hmm. committees in Rome, too. But no one's traveling to Rome now because of the COVID thing. So that's kind of what I do. I see. Now that you're bishop, do you have, like, a spiritual director that you can get advice from or talk about spiritual things? Well, one of the weaknesses I have had and I recognize of having a very short time as a seminary, I had three spiritual directors in four years, not because I wore them out. But because one of them got moved to another parish, one of them, I've had a very spotty experience of spiritual direction in my life as a priest, which again, I regret. I have always had a confessor who is kind of like my spiritual director, and I do now. One of the priests actually in the house, I regularly go for a confession to him, and I get spiritual direction in a sense, although it's more confession. But I also, I have some, I do a lot of reading and praying, and I have some good friends who are kind of my spiritual directors as well. But I think it's very important for a priest to have a good spiritual director. I've worked on it over the years. I have something like that. But I've not had what I think is the ideal. 
for what I think would be good. And I regret that, but I'm 73 now and I, I've done my best and, you know, I, I've, I've patched it away. But my main spiritual director would be the one I go to confession to. So since becoming a bishop, how would you say your faith has changed? I don't know. It's just deepened. And I think especially during this time when I'm this, I'm on the 136th Mass in a row. Mm -hmm. uh, mass every day, preaching every day. That's I have found that to be spiritually very rewarding and very deepening. I mean, I just praying and praying for the, try to preach on something, you have to pray a lot about it. And I found that, I hope it's helpful to the people, but it's certainly helpful to me. Same with doing the Lectio Divina. I really find it myself to be something helpful in my own spiritual life. I have found over the years, I've been a priest 47 years, a bishop 23, I'm coming up to 73 years and a half. About a year and a half before I put in my retirement, and then I may have zero time after that, or I may have five more years. They would never keep you beyond 80, though. So I'm basically, most of my time is done. I have found that my faith has gone deeper and deeper, and I see horrible problems in the church and in the society. A lot of the dictatorship, a lot of bullying, all this, even some of the very virtuous thing where we talk about, like, Black Lives Matter, very important to not have any racism. But also, there's a lot of violence and a lot of bullying, which is not, cannot be good. So there's a lot of evil in the world. So I notice that more and more. I, and I sometimes deal with people who I think are acting wrongly. You know, as you get older, you see more and more. You just have more time. And I've discovered I make more mistakes. You know, I realize as you get older, you have a longer record of looking back in your life. I think I could have done it a different way or whatever. So that affects my doesn't affect my faith. It affects just my human awareness of frailty. But there's so many good people. There's just wonderful lay people, wonderful priests, wonderful seminarians. Like when I was just looking over those eight guys that I ordained just this last while. Oh my gosh! When I go out to seminary, I just they're great. I, I gather with the gatherings of the priests. You know, sometimes you have a problem with the priest. You know, does this or that wrong? I mean. That'll end up in the papers. That's what you always hear about. But we have hundreds and hundreds of holy, faithful priests. So my faith is strengthened by, by that and by the young people. Like when I go to the schools, when I, I think I'm going to be doing a marriage with a young lad who I, he was a student trustee. And so uh, I'm going to be, and he's very much involved in the Jesus Youth Movement. His brother's a seminary and he's getting married. So uh, here we go. So I just see these wonderful young people. I mean, I just... And when you're 73, that really encourages you, you know, and, and even though I see problems and I see, darn, I wish I had been able in my time as bishop to have fixed this or that problem. Some of the things I tried to work on are getting worse. Uh, you know, I think some institutions I try to make more Catholic are getting worse. Mm -hmm. And I, that makes me sad. But at the same time, I see so many good, good people. And I figure... I always joke that when I'm slotted out horizontal in, at the seminary, there's a little, small little building, a little mausoleum, six slots, five are occupied, one's empty, put my little name on it. And so I, I always say, you put a little smile on my face, because I'll be, I'll be a happy camper out there, because there's so many good, good people. They'll fight the good fight. I see. So my last question is, if you could advise your 18-year-old self, what would you say? Oh, my 18-year-old self, that's a long time ago. But I'd say, just live honorably and pray. Pray to the Lord to guide you. And try to live honorably. 
loving God and loving neighbor, basically, and to live with integrity uh, as best you can, repent of your sins. My favorite prayer when I pray all the time is, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because I was just thinking recently, the 18-year-old is about the age of King Solomon when he became king. And it was just, just recently, it was a reading from that. He asked for an understanding heart. But as he got older, his heart hardened. So I might say to my 18-year-old self, keep that freshness. And that's why I believe in having, if someone's ready, to have an 18-year-old seminarian. I don't mind that at all. Some of you say, oh, wait till they've had a lot of life experience. No, I don't think so. You can, it could be your call like me to be later, others much later, but I think just to have an understanding heart like Solomon and don't take the bad mistakes he did later on, you know. Mm -hmm. Just try to live honorably, loving God and loving neighbor. Okay, well, thank you for spending the time with me. It's been great having you on this interview. Oh, thanks, Lyndon. It's just so good. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and thank you for all your leadership. I'm really grateful for the live stream mass because I try and tune in every day. Oh, okay, um, right, yeah. And all of the initiatives with, with the civic sphere, with the different youth communities. It's really great. Yeah. No, there's a lot of different things. That's through the whole, the political thing, and different. And, and to try to help out with the people. There's so many people in need. But it all comes down to the Holy Eucharist. That's the still point in a turning world. That's the, that's the hub. And that's why I'm so glad we got the churches open. It's so horrible to close them. But we have to because we also have to love, you know, make sure we protect mm -hmm. But now it's, uh, I want to get more people, <laughs> get, get everyone back. So that's why, but we're going to do, I'll keep doing the live streaming though, because it does help people, I think. And not everyone can get to mass. Uh, it's not the same exact, you don't receive communion, but mm -hmm. it is something that maybe, I think it's, some people seem to express it's helpful. Mm -hmm. So going uh, for quite some time, maybe a long time. A big thank you to Cardinal Collins for agreeing to be interviewed and giving me the opportunity to ask a lot of questions I've never been able to ask before. And this wraps up our season of interviews with people from different vocational backgrounds. I will be taking a little bit of a break, and when we start the new season, expect to hear shorter and more contemplative reflections. And now let's have a listen to the song that Cardinal Collins picked, O God Beyond All Praising. This version was sung by the Villanova Pastoral Musicians. Until next time, bye-bye.